if you're singing a new worship song that's out, maybe you've heard it on the radio, it's a Highlands, they have a song, a song of ascent, and the lyrics are really modeled after a, a series of songs to describe a climb. And it's a climb that uh, Jewish men and women would make a few times a year as they made their way towards Jerusalem. We'll give you concerts for that before the sermon's over, but this this climb is what it means to know who Jesus is. And last time I was listening to this uh, in my little earphones, I was climbing up the little tiny incline here in Castle Rock and thinking about the, the ascent that God's called us to. And I wonder if this week you have felt like you're on a bit of a climb. It could be that it, it's just that life is going through a, a difficulty for you, or maybe you're facing some circumstances that are hard or painful. Or maybe it's just within yourself that you just think, I just know that God's calling me to love more, to be patient more, to be kinder, to be more generous, more thoughtful, and that climb is a difficult one for you. And if so, then Messy Church, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, hopefully it's helpful to you. Did you enjoy the worship so far today? Was that good? Yeah, so I've, I've got Kentucky roots, and so I almost forgot where I was for a moment. Um, some of you grew up with some worship like that, so good. I mean, banjo, you know, fiddle. You know, some days, some weeks, some Sundays are called a violin, but today it was a fiddle. And uh, so good, so good. And, you know, and here's the thing. Josh is a very unique individual. He really is. I mean, God has gifted him in, in really powerful, thoughtful ways. And we're really glad that he's here and that Andy's here as well. They're part of our church body. Uh, but sometimes... You know, the level of his talent is just a bit disgusting. You know what I mean? Um, and jealousy rises up. So can we just be honest about it? You know, I mean, some of you are like me. You know, you're one or two talent people, and you look at that and you think, God, that just doesn't even seem fair. So we were in rehearsal. I played drums last week in church. I had fun time doing it. And uh, every now and then, Josh throws me a bone, you know, and lets me pick up the sticks. We were in rehearsal for that Sunday, and we got to this one song. Josh had some thoughts in mind about what he wanted to happen you know, for this song. And, and so he said, so Phil, how about if you, well, let me just show you. And so, so I, he had moved it up, and he sat down at the drums and showed me what to play, and then went back to the guitar and the keyboard that he played last weekend. And now he just thought, you know what, I'm not sure if everybody knows everything I can do, so I'm going to put the drum up with my guitar and, so this moment, maybe you can take a moment when this has happened for you, when this comparison occurs in your life, where it's a little bit of, uh, maybe for you, it's a smell like self-pity, might smell a little bit like comparison, or, or maybe you just think, what we talked about last week, if you shouldn't be this hard, why is life this hard? Why is it this difficult? I'm doing my best. I'm trying. And we find ourselves living out really the verse that Paul uh, gave the Corinthians early in the first letter. Are you not acting like mere humans? Aren't you just a, a little frail in you know, your attitude or maybe how you're treating one another or in your lack of holiness or purity or even good motives that exist? acting like mere humans. And then he gets a little more specific, and he says, you know what, you're just jealous, and you, you quarrel with one another. This is what makes the church messy, are these egos that show up. And so very early 
community in the church. We've been talking about it for about I don't know, four weeks now. And he talked about how to find common ground. This is the solution if you want to get along with the church. But now he is spending some time in these last chapters before he changes subject in 1 Corinthians 5. He wants everybody to understand the root causes of this issue of disunity and quarreling. Because if you don't understand the root cause, it's just going to happen again and again. And if you don't deal with it in an ongoing way, you're going to find yourself always struggling. And the struggle that he is talking about, when he gets very specific, sinful nature, and how you can name what part of your sinful nature is active, when you have these feelings of jealousy or competition or comparing, and he says this, some of you have become what? That's just an ugly word, isn't it? Some of you have become arrogant. You're, you're proud. You're boastful. The things that you are expressing, you're, you're picking one leader over another, you're saying, I'm right and you're wrong. All of these characteristics could really be kind of brought under one umbrella, and it's arrogance. And arrogance, while the word is ugly, let's just boil it down to what it happens, with how it is expressed relationally. I feel like I'm just a little better than you. Maybe not a lot better, but certainly a little smarter than you. Maybe a little kinder than you. Maybe more fluent than you. Maybe more accomplished than you. I feel like I'm right. I think you're probably wrong. And, you know, one day God will make that clear to you, and then we can get along. But until then, you just have to live with me being right and you being wrong. And so I pity you. It's really the end result. And Paul says this arrogance is the root of the issue that results in disunity. And not just disunity, but a misunderstanding of the nature of the gospel. And so he gets pretty deep into what is the solution. So he goes on to explain it a little bit further, and he says this, he says, the purpose, the reason I'm writing this, the reason I'm opening my letter to you, the reason why I'm pointing out all your flaws and all the things that are happening in your church that shouldn't be happening, the reason is so that none of you will be, what? Inflated with pride. It's good. So he's going to talk about why that matters and why it's a big deal. Now, it's interesting. This word that Paul uses to describe pride isn't the normal Greek word that we would read in Scripture over and over. It describes pride. The normal Greek word, we have an English equivalent of that Greek word, and the word is hubris. You've heard that word before? How many of you heard that word before? Hubris. So this word is hubris. This has this impression that I, I'm boastful. This is a little bit different. This word is a Greek word, physio, and it's only used by Paul, period, in the New Testament. Paul's the only one who uses it. He uses it about five times. In this letter to the Corinthians, he uses it once in the letter to the church to Colossians. And it's a theme, it's just this unique theme of Paul's. And Paul will talk about hubris, and he does on other occasions. But this word, physio, means some different things. And he wants you to understand this. Now remember, when Paul wrote this letter to the church of Corinth, he didn't write in English. He didn't write any words we understand. He wrote it in the Greek, and these Greek words have very specific context and meaning. And so it's important for us to get our heads around what that means. Now, before we do that, let me ask you to do this. I want you to think about 
the last time, maybe it's today or last week, or maybe one incident that will stand out to you. I want to think about the last time call to mind that your ego was damaged or bruised. The last time your ego ego got poked or, or maybe knocked around a bit or, or kicked hard and you felt well, you fill in the blank here, but it could be a variety of things. It's a little different for all of us. You felt cast aside, unimportant, less than. Maybe you felt angry, bowed up, ready to take somebody on. All of us react differently. Maybe you felt worthless. Maybe you felt like you needed to establish your position by authority or by might. When was the last time somebody questioned your worth, your ability, and it was a little bit public? Happened in a setting where, well, for most of us, we felt our temperature go up about five degrees or something like that. The room felt hot. Maybe you were sweating. When did that happen? What was going on? Who was there? What was it about? What was the issue at hand? Something somebody said. Maybe something you did. Maybe you were walking somewhere publicly and it slipped and a bunch of people saw. What was it? What was your ego bruised? So just keep that in mind. It's important. In fact, everything Paul says in this passage is going to be so much more helpful to you if you can imagine a few relationships where this is likely, or a few settings where it is common, and then you'll be able to apply it very quickly. Because it's not hard if you can put your heart into it. So this word, physio, it means inflated with pride. In fact, the translation there, the HCSB translation, gets it almost perfectly. That there is a a point in time when our egos become, well, most translations say, puffed up. And the image, of course, is a, a balloon that is over-inflated beyond its proper size. And this picture of an ego that's, that's puffed up describes me at times, might even describe you at times. And Paul is writing all that he's writing in these first four chapters to tell the Corinthians, don't do that. Because it's going to create all manner of havoc and relational carnage that you can easily avoid by embracing humility. So puffed up, natural condition of the human ego. In fact, we use these words to describe what this, this Greek word means. Something that is puffed up, this balloon that's overinflated, it's it's actually, well, at the end of the day, it's empty, isn't it? What's it full of? Oh, it's just some air. If you blew it up, it's full of hot air, isn't it? See, the ego will work. It's also overinflated. It's fragile. In fact, once a balloon is blown up beyond its capacity, the slightest thing will make it pop, and all of a sudden, everything leaves completely deflated. And this balloon is puffed out because it's near other balloons, isn't it? It's always comparing. In fact, this, this Greek word 
means that your worth, your identity, is only what it is because you are better than someone else. Now, the ego, the physio, even hubris is the same way. It's only better when you are, in comparison to someone else, stronger, taller, richer, more powerful, you name it. In fact, the ego says, I'm not content that I have this. I see that you have this. What I want, I don't even know what I want. All I know is that I want more than you. In that moment, I find my ego at work. This is how Paul describes it. Not long ago, I played golf with a few of our fine church members. And uh, and when we played golf, I had, I had not played with this this particular foursome before. There were four of us that went out to play. And I, you know, I wasn't sure kind of how this would operate, but let me be clear. If you want to see the ego at work, then go play golf with a few fellows. And I'm not letting females off the hook. I'm sure that would be the case as well. And when we get ready to play, I visit each of them and say, hey, play golf. Yeah, yeah, play golf. I'll see you Thursday. And I said the same thing to each of them. Oh, yeah, bring your wallet. Yeah. It may seem like a very distasteful thing to you, that your pastor would want to fleece a church member of their funds. But for me, it was just a little experiment, just to see. See how it worked. And so, in this moment, all of these are at work. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a, I'm a really, I'm, I'm really quite a golfer. I'm really, I'm really good at golf. Okay. Back in 1992, I hit a three-wood from 230 yards out within six inches of the cup. 1992, that's when that happened. Now, it hasn't happened since. But when I did that, I became utterly convinced that I can actually do that. You know why? Because I did that. That's why. And so there is a part of me that's full of physio, right? That believes that that's not just possible, but likely. And yet there's another part of me, this part of me is fragile and busy comparing. It knows and believes that when I stand up behind that golf ball on the number one tee, I'm ready to tee off. The likelihood of my ball landing in the fairway is 0%. Which is probably not going to happen. Now, I know what you're thinking. If you're a psychologist at all or understand sports psychology, you think, well, yeah, if you tee off with that mentality, of course it's not going to happen. But every now and then it does. But most of the time it doesn't. And when my friend, and I'll just use initials so everybody doesn't yell, they don't want to call anybody out. When my friend Mark Hammerhead is, is on the tee, I, I love Mark, and, and, I, and I want him to do well. We were in competition, which means for 18 holes we were comparing. And so when he is addressing the ball and his ball goes into the woods, I say to him, oh, tough shot, but inside I'm dancing. 
This is this is the nature of your ego. It's the nature of my ego that is overinflated and believes the very best about me and the very worst about you. And that's the nature, human nature, sinful nature, that Paul is describing. And when he does describe it, we see all of these aspects at work. Aren't you acting like you're human? Philip, the day you play with your your friends, that you would wish them to fail, jealousy and insecure and prideful. All of these things are at work in the context of a relationship. And yet Paul says, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ, follower of Jesus, which means I am created in God's image. I know my identity. I know who I belong to. I know that I was bought with a price. I know that God has recreated me and is in the process of recreating me from the inside out to want what he wants, to set aside what I want. I know who I'm accepted by, and I know to whom I belong. And when I understand this, it frees me from posturing. It takes this physio, it takes this hubris, and sets it aside as not only irrelevant, but unimportant. When that happens, then I relate to you as a person created in God's image. There is no scarcity mentality. There's not this many pieces of the pie, and I get more and you get less. None of that is at work. I can love you with a, a agape love that wants what's best for you, knowing that that's how God has loved me. What we said last week is that this climb that we have to make, this ascent that we have to be a part of is a very hard, long, narrow road. And what is that ascent about, and how do we climb it? How do we get there? And Paul describes it well, and it's probably summarized best in this little book that, that I read maybe seven, eight years ago. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And in this book, Timothy Keller, who's a, a pastor in New York, he articulates what is true about the passage that we've read in the church this week. At the very end, of 1 Corinthians 3, the very beginning, 1 Corinthians 4. And this book lays out in such simple ways. I'll give you some summaries and some bits and pieces today. But we want you to be able to take one with you as a family. Now, if you're not a reader, maybe for somebody who is, if you read digitally, you can get it for a few bucks on Amazon. But if you as a family want to take one with you and digest and pass around, we have some staff in the lobby. And this will give you a chance to take some truth that we're talking about here on Sunday and build it deeper into your life. And we share this with you because this idea, what Paul talks about, 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, is so critical to your understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to grow, to become more like him. If you miss it, you can find your life a struggle. So how does Paul do it? How does Paul make this climb? It's unique. It's interesting. Now, grasp some context of who Paul is. You may not know much about the Apostle Paul, but he was one of the more significant Jewish men of his generation, even before he met Jesus. He was a scholar. He was educated. He was probably in line to be one of the next high priests among the Jewish community. 
he was key individual in Jerusalem. He had all kinds of reasons, whether it was pedigree, family, education, to find himself important, or in his words, puffed up, overinflated in his ego. And at the same time, he had just as many reasons to feel discarded and worthless. Because he spent a good portion of his life fighting the very church of God and fighting against people that knew Jesus. In fact, he persecuted the church of God in such significant ways that it took years for first century Christians to even trust for him to be in their presence. So Paul finds himself in these two extremes, reasons to be full of pride and reasons to be so self-deprecating that he can never even get out of bed. And in the middle of this, Paul has found a way to climb this mountain. And here's what he says. And maybe you're ready to speak. If not, I encourage you to read the passage that we're talking about. It's on your program. It's in the e-news. Here's what it, it, how he begins talking about this issue. He says this, I care very little if I am, what? Judged by you or any human court. Let's say the whole verse together. You ready? I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. That sounds a little bit like apathy, doesn't it? Or it sounds like Paul's maybe a bit callous, or like he just doesn't care, he's above your opinions. But that's not the case at all. In fact, what Paul's doing is he's putting pieces together that will help put your ego in the proper place so that you can find your identity and your worth where it should belong. So Paul says, powerful words. I don't really care what you think about me. How many of you would love to have the freedom to say what you just said? How many of you love that? How many of you find yourself ruled by the opinions of other people? Let me see your hands. How many of you find yourself making decisions based on how it will be perceived by somebody else? Anybody? When this happens, it is the ego at work because pride and insecurity are two sides of the same issue. We find our worth based on other people. Pride, comparing it. Insecurity, comparing it. It's always same. And Paul, in his wisdom, says, I wish I'd read this when I was 14, 15 years old. Wish I'd understood this when I was going through middle school or high school. Paul says, I care very little from judged by you or any human court. And he goes on to say this. Indeed, I do not even what? Now this is where Paul takes the map of the ego, it, self-importance, our identity, and he goes off the reservation. He's in territory that we don't even understand. Most of us don't even comprehend where he is. He's in a new place. And this new place is only possible because of the gospel of Jesus. So Paul now says, I don't care what you think of me. So then the natural conclusion would be, well, you must then be evaluating yourself. And Paul says, I don't even evaluate myself. I don't even judge myself. What I think about myself I don't even trust. In fact, that's what he says next. Look at what he says. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you 
or by any human authority, same verse, different translation, I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. Anybody saying that? Do you understand what he means? I don't even trust my own self because on Tuesday, I think, oh, I'm so glad I woke up. On Wednesday, I think, oh, I just want you to believe that I'm here on this earth. And so Paul knows that even his own opinion goes up and it goes down. Your opinion of me goes up and it goes down. So Paul says, I don't pay any attention to any of that. I can't. It's a roller coaster that Paul doesn't want to ride. And then he says this. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who does what? It is the Lord who judges me. Now that can be a frightening thing. In fact, it says in this passage that it is God who will bring every hidden thing to light. And all of our motives to lie. It's a little scary. We'll read that verse in a moment. His conscience is clear, but that doesn't make him innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. And then he says this. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time. What's the time? When the Lord returns. So don't make any judgments about anyone ahead of time. And that includes you. For you. Me. For me. Sounds a little bit like something Jesus said. And he says, Do not what? Do not judge. Do not judge. But here's what happens to me and to you. We find ourselves in our society, in our culture, and in our families, and in our homes, and our social circumstances to be the critiques of all that is around us, right? And this is how we critique this is good, this is bad. She's good, she's bad. He's good for work, he's bad for work for you. And so we critique and we judge, and this is a constant activity that we engage in. When we do that, what we fail to see is that we're doing the same thing to ourselves because the measure with which we apply to someone else always gets applied to us, especially when you judge spiritually. Well, surely they can't know God, and then we believe that that same measure is of course applied to us. This is what Jesus said, do not judge. For the measure with which you judge, what did he say? That same measure will be used with you. This is why Jesus said, do not judge. It isn't as much about how you feel about other people as it is about how you feel about yourself. That's what Paul says. Don't make any judgments about anyone ahead of time. No one around you deserves your judgment. Who makes the judgment? Only God does. Now just stop. Think about that verse. And think about our culture. Think about what would be changed if even non-believers lived by that idea. Not judging. Think about what would change in your interactions with other people. Think about the peace that you would have if you understood that God's love for you is complete and it's just as complete as it is for the other person. Think about what you would be free from if you set that activity aside. If you decided that you were going to hang up your critiquing job and instead love people completely and fully. In fact, it's the only command that Jesus gives us for us to love one 
made it fit the gospel, and you have misunderstood the nature of the gospel. Paul is saying that when it comes to your relationship with God, your eternity, everything that matters, your worth, your identity, who you belong to, who you've been accepted by, that it looks this way. The verdict comes, and out of the verdict flows the performance. The verdict is first. The verdict is always first when it comes to the gospel. If the verdict wasn't first, then Jesus died for nothing. That's the summary of Galatians chapter 2. If the verdict wasn't first, then the cross has no power. The cross has power, immense power, all power. The verdict comes, and our performance flows from it. This is why Paul could say to the church, I don't care what you think about me. It doesn't matter. I don't care what I think about me. My opinion of myself isn't worth having an opinion of. It goes up and down just like the stock market. Is that my worth or value? Absolutely not. It's a firm established and fixed. The verdict comes before the performance. This truth is all through Scripture. How did John say it? He said, We love God because God first loved us. The verdict comes before the performance. When you understand this, then you can climb that mountain from insecurity and jealousy and fear and ego being puffed up beyond its supposed important size. And you can find yourself at the summit, and the summit is this place. I am made in God's image. I know who I am. I know who God created me to be. I know my worth. I have been bought by a price, the scriptures say. I don't do not even belong to myself. I can't even evaluate myself. But I know how I am to love. I set aside all the posturing. I set aside all of the judgment. And when I do that, what happens? Jesus is centered. Ego is set aside. All of the insecurity and jealousy, my relational neediness, my relational closed-offness, all of that goes away. So now you ponder a moment when your ego is bruised, when you found yourself reacting in a negative, demanding, maybe angry, aggressive, or withdrawn, pitiful way. What if? What if your identity was understood and known? What if you were able to be in that meeting when you were ridiculed or when you were wrong or wherever it was that you found yourself? What if in that moment you were able to respond with a gospel-oriented love? You would find yourself understanding how God feels about you more deeply than you ever have before. The verdict comes and the performance flows through it. So I'm going to invite members of our prayer team to make their way up here in the front. I'm going to lead us through a prayer. Worship teams, they come up and we're going to sing this, this song of ascents. This song of ascents is based on 15 psalms in the entire catalog of psalms. Psalms 120 to 134. 15 psalms. This is the, the songs that Jewish men and women would sing 
on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, or the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Most of them give us a sense of hope and anticipation, but they all point to the struggle of what it means to climb. Because climbing is hard. It takes effort and energy. It takes something deep out of you when you're climbing. And so if you find yourself struggling with your ego in this moment, and you wonder if there's ever hope on the other side, the Psalms of Ascent and the Psalm of the Highlands remind you that there is hope. So Lord, we come to you now in this moment of prayer, and we ask that you would help us to feel and know your presence. We ask that as we sing this song, that we would be reminded that we are on this journey through life. And on this journey, we take with us and carry with us often a bruised ego or a hurt feelings, this sense that things aren't the way they should be, then this should be as hard as it is. And so we desperately want the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 to be deeply embedded in our hearts. We want to be able to say with thoughtful love and reflection to the people around us, I don't mind being judged by you, I don't really need your opinion to understand my worth or identity. You want to be able to echo his words by saying, I don't even judge myself. <laughs> I don't even evaluate myself. It is the Lord who will judge me then. And when he does, of course, everything about me will be known because that's how love works. To be fully loved, I must be fully known. And God, we truly believe that you know everything about us. So we declare that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, may we leave today with an understanding of our worth and our identity who we belong to, and who we have been accepted by. So we worship you now.